If you need a Bible, there should be one in the seat um, in front of you. And if you are reading from that Bible like I am, you will find today's reading on page 1016. First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the, at the proper time he may exalt you. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. It is great to see you here today. Thanks. <laughs> hey, we're walking through the book of 1 Peter, and you may wonder, you come to a section like this, and it's obviously that's, it's a section on leadership, and you may think, okay, what does that really have to do with me? You know, what does that have to do with me when the subject that he's addressing is the leadership that is a part of the body of Christ of the church? And one of the things that's really important for us to see as we get started this morning is that God cares so much for you that he wants you, when you're a part of the body of Christ, to be surrounded by leaders that know how to care for you. That God cares so much for us that he wants us to be led by individuals, men and women, who have a passion not just to lead but a passion first and foremost to love God and because they love God, really describing each other. And so as we jump into this text, even though it's addressing elders, what it's really describing is the picture of what maturity looks like in the church. Because if you jump down all the way down to verse 5, he starts addressing all of us and he says, all of you. So I'm not just talking about the elders. All that I said in verses 1 through 4, it also applies to us. So all of you, verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility. That the starting point for leadership, and certainly for leadership in the church, is always humility. Now we're going to unpack why that's true. But in verse 2, he also said we need to be eager. And by being eager, what he's referring to is we need to be eager to serve. I think in a lot of leadership positions, maybe we get into leadership because of what it can do for me. Maybe because of what the job pays, the title that comes with it, the opportunities that we see. But see, in the church, it has to look different than the world. The reason you get in leadership in the church is not for what is best for you. Because see, leader in the, leadership in the church is really about what is best for the body and what is best for God. Because the ultimate leader that we follow didn't rise up on a throne and become a CEO. 
It wasn't a leader that came to a throne, though he was a king. He was enthroned not upon a, a palace seat, but rather upon a cross. And so our greatest example of leadership is one who laid down his life for the benefit of others. So as we jump into this today, what I want you to see is not so much just what do leaders look like, elders, what are they supposed to do, but who am I supposed to be? And what are the qualities that I need to set my heart on so that I might become the kind of leader, whether inside the church or outside the church, that doesn't simply point people to myself, but rather a leader that leads in a way that points people to God. And what we're going to discover, it's a leader that is centered on the gospel. We're going to discover three things. That a leader centered on the gospel, we're going to discover what does that leader need to do. Then second, what do they not need to do? And then finally, what motivates them? So what do they need to do? What, what should they not do? And then last of all, what is it that motivates them? So let's jump in if you'll pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 5, verse 2. Watch this. Peter says, so I exhort you, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. Now, the beauty of the way that Peter starts is he's identifying himself with us. Now, a lot of leaders want to stand out from us. You're the ones that follow me. I'm the leader. I distance myself from you. What Peter does is he says, I'm one of you. And I'm one who's not out to get something from you. You notice how he starts? He tells us right away what's his motivation. It's not to get something from you, but my pursuit is the glory that is to be revealed. Now, we're going to look at this again because he bookmarks verses 1 through 6 with this idea of glory. You're going to see it in verse 1. You'll also see it down in verse 4. That a big question you've got to ask when a leader is leading you is, what is that person after? What do they want? Now, maybe what they want is what you want, and so you're in a corporation, and they're going in the same direction. They may not want your best, but the best for the corporation is the best for you, and so you follow that leader because you're pursuing the, the same thing. But when it comes to a leader in the church, you've got to ask the question, and if we are going to be leaders, what is it that we really want? Because I don't know if you realize this, but what you want is going to show up in what you do. What you want most. I can say up front, I want to glorify God and love him, but really what I really want is going to show up in the things that I do. And so a leader in the church is one that first and foremost has to have a heart that loves God. Now, Peter's a unique example because Peter, in the beginning, he was the kind of leader that I think many of us would have been attracted to. If you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find Peter was a confident leader. Now, he was a leader that was so confident, sometimes he said things he shouldn't have said. But he was the first one when somebody said, you know, who am I? Who, am I? who do people say that I am? He's the one that got it right. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he's also the one that got it wrong the most. Because even though he got it right, the next statement is, hey, Peter, I've got to go and die for you. And you know what his response was? He ain't dying for me. Because to die for me would mean that I'm weak. Jesus, I'm not weak, I'm strong. And I know you see that strength in me. And that must be why you want to use me. See, Peter was someone on the outside had all the qualities of leadership, of strength, of insight, of determination, a pioneer. And yet, no one has failed worse than Peter. 
You know, if you go to John chapter 21, you find this interesting discussion that Peter has with Jesus after the resurrection. Because, you know, right before Jesus died, it was Peter. It was Peter more than anyone else who said, Jesus, even though everyone else is going to run away, they're going to take off, they're going to flee, not me. I'm going to be right beside you. I'm going to fight and I'm going to defend you. But if you look at that story in John chapter 21, it's this little 14-year-old girl that says, I think you were one of them. And that was the last straw. Peter denied Jesus, and he walked away, and it says that he wept bitterly. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he came back to Peter. Now, you might think if you were Peter and you failed to that degree, I'm the last person that's going to get picked for leadership. (laughs) I mean, think about it. At least John, the one that Jesus loved, was at the cross. We know that. Peter is gone. He's running off. He's hiding. So the last person you would think that would get picked is the one that failed the most. And yet Jesus comes to Peter and says this question over and over. Peter, do you love me? And Peter answers three times the same way. Lord, you know that I love you. Three times Peter, uh, Jesus asked, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he says, of course I love you. Well, here's the response. Jesus responds by saying, well, feed my sheep. Take care of my flock. Feed my flock. See, what is he saying? When Peter abandoned Jesus, Peter abandoned Jesus because Peter loved Peter. Peter loved him some Peter. And he wanted to protect what he most loved. As I said before, what you most love is going to show up in what you do, and it's going to show up on the worst days, not the best days. It's going to show up on the days when stress comes in and the deal doesn't come through. The way you treat others really shows you what's in the heart, what you most desire. And see, in Peter's heart, on the worst of days, what he most desired was to protect himself. And so Peter ran. And so when Jesus asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? What he's saying is, Peter, do you love me more than you love yourself? It's okay to care for yourself, but Peter, if you're going to follow me, you've got to lay down your life and follow me. For whoever tries to take up his life, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel is going to find it. Peter, I can't use someone who thinks he's competent. It's the opposite of what we think, isn't it? I can't use someone that thinks he's got what it takes to lead in the kingdom of God. I've got to take you to a place where you recognize that apart from me, you ready? Peter, you can do nothing. That before Peter could rise to a place of leadership, he had to be broken in his own sin. See, that's where God starts. Why does he end in verse 6? God opposes the proud. Because the proud don't think they need anything. I got what it takes. My charisma, my talent, my abilities. I'm set. But you notice in the Bible as you walk through, every time you see someone rise to a position of leadership, they don't rise out of success. They always rise out of failure. Have you noticed that? Just take a little survey. Go through Scripture. And you'll find that each leader, even after their best day, think of Noah, He had a great day, built a ship, right? Earth was flooded. He walks out, and what does he do? What's the first thing he does? Come on now. 
he gets drunk. Because that's the kind of leaders that God uses. Now, what do I mean by that? Not that we need to get drunk. (laughs) But God uses someone that recognizes that he's not using me because I am perfect. He's using me to reflect his perfection. You think of Jacob. Jacob was called a heel grabber. He was a deceiver. Throughout his life, he deceived, he deceived, he deceived. The one person he could not deceive was God. So when he got in a wrestling match with God, God had to humble him. He physically broke him. And it was only after Jacob was broken by God that he could be called Israel, and he was finally ready for leadership. You ever read the story of Isaiah? Go to Isaiah chapter 6, and God comes to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, I want to use you. And he says, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and I've now seen the Lord God Almighty. And he says, you're right. Now I can send you. And he says, here I am. Send me. And each story in Scripture, what you find is that God comes and he shows up, not in a moment of success and accomplishment, but rather in a moment of brokenness and weakness. Think of the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul, on his resume, he looked like a great leader. He had the Ph.D. He was taught by the best uh, teachers of his day. He was a rabbi of rabbis, a Jew of Jews. He was conquering. He was a pioneer, taking out the Christians. And yet, when he met Jesus for the first time, the question that Jesus asked was, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Meaning, Paul, before you can follow me, you need to look at what you're doing. You need to see the depths of your own brokenness because only if you see the depths of your sin and brokenness will you be magnified and, and captivated by the width of my glory. You see what he's saying? What, what Peter experienced was transformation. And the reason that Peter could be an effective leader is he never got over what Jesus did for him. Money wasn't attractive enough to him. Titles would not have been attractive because the beauty of who Christ is and the recognition, I don't deserve to be in this place of leadership, that's what transformed his heart. Not to be focused on Peter, but rather for Peter now to be focused on God and because he's focused on God, to be focused on others. So what, is a, what does a leader do? Certainly a leader that is captivated by God. What do they look like? Well, notice this. He says it in verse 2. He captures it in two ways. He says that a leader is to be responsible. He is a shepherd of the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's two aspects that he describes here, two different ways of approaching leadership. One is to care for people. That's a shepherd to watch out for, to lead, and to guide. But then an overseer is one who's focused on the details. They see the big picture. They are the administrators, those that put things in place. And he's saying to Peter, I want you to shepherd and love God's people, but love them in the right direction. Love them not towards yourself and what you want, but rather I want you to love them towards me and who I am. Now, one way to think of this that I think is helpful for the church is to think of categories of leadership in the church and maybe yourself in one of three categories. Because Jesus came as a prophet, he spoke the truth. He came as a priest, he led people into God's presence, but he was also a king. Jesus established the church, raised up leaders and put structures in place. He was a prophet, he was a priest, 
He was a king. Now, a prophet is somebody that loves truth. They love theology. They like to read books by old, dead white guys. That's what gets them excited. And they like to protect the congregation from error. When they hear anger, error, they get angry. They get riled up and they say, I want to protect the flock. I want to guide us in a direction. So they think about what do we need to teach and what is the best way to teach it? What's the best way to communicate these ideas so that the church itself is going in a direction of truth? Now, you may be a prophet. You may be somebody who loves to study, loves to communicate, and is passionate about truth. Or you may be a priest. A priest doesn't think about truth first. A priest thinks about people. How is this truth going to impact the people? They're always thinking about people. How can we serve one another? How can we care for one another? Who's being left out? Who's not here today? If you've thought that, you're definitely a priest. Because a priest is someone that loves people and is concerned about the needs of others. The last thing, and that may be who you are, you may be a priest, somebody that is concerned about the needs of the body, constantly thinking about and serving others. Or finally, you may be a king, and a king is a king. A king loves leadership, and when they walk into a room and there's no leadership, it drives them crazy because they want to go to a meeting and have a plan. They want to see the agenda. They want to know what they're going to accomplish. And if there's nothing to be accomplished, they're not going to show up. And they're not going to be there because they want to see things done and they want to connect resources to people and processes. And that may be who you are. You may be a king. Well, Jesus, because he is perfect, was all three of those things. We are not. Now, if some of you are, wow, that's just amazing. But most of us, <laughs> most of us cannot balance details with love for people. Or mission, sometimes we railroad others and because we take the mission so seriously, we will just run down the throat of others because of what we want to accomplish. Or we'll be so loving to others, we'll never get anywhere. Or we'll be so truth-minded that we never think, well, what difference does it make? How is that going to impact the community? But the beauty is in this church, and then some of you are those qualities. And those qualities are not just to be used from the front into the audience. This is not an audience. It's a congregation. It's a body. And we each have to discover where has God uniquely gifted me. As I describe those three things, I hope you wrote them down and said, hey, this is where I am. I am a prophet. I am a priest. I am a king. That's where you need to start serving. You see, even though God has called all of us, not all of us are prepared to serve. And the place you begin, the way that we start to build that spirit of service is by getting involved. We've got to step in. And so he's saying to Peter, the kind of people we need is not just one person. We need a community of people. Because it's only the body of Christ when it's working together that's able to meet the needs. The needs that are represented in this room. See, what does a leader need? They need a heart for others. But they also, they also need this recognition that we have to come together to accomplish the goal. So what does a leader need? But second, um, what should leaders not do? I think in some ways over the years, you may find that the church has been known more for what we should not do than what we should do. And he describes a series of values and pursuits that he says that as a leader in the church, these are not the things you need to chase after. If you do, the way you exercise your leadership will look more like the world and less like Christ. So watch this in verse 2. He says, again, be shepherds of the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, and notice, not under compulsion. 
What he's saying is not because you have to. If you serve because you have to, there's something wrong with the heart. And before you get in that place of leadership, he wants you to start addressing the heart. Now, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be perfect. But he says, not under compulsion, but rather willingly as God would have you. See, a mature leader doesn't lead just out of need, but out of calling. They know that God has placed a passion in their heart. And because that passion is in their heart, there is a desire within them to make a difference. You know, some of you, I know when you sit back and you watch something, you see a problem. Well, that problem may be a calling. The problem that you see, maybe it's in the church on a Sunday. Maybe it's the way I teach or preach. Maybe it's the decorations. Maybe it's how people are cared for. Maybe it's the way things are communicated. And here, in, a, in the culture in America, what we tend to do is just to complain. In the kingdom, you don't complain. You solve the problem. Because the reason the problem is in your heart may be because you see the solution, and the solution is for you to get involved and to become a part of the process to make the body better. Sometimes we look around and say, hey, why isn't the church doing what it should be doing? Well, maybe because that's what you should be doing. It could be that my role as a prophet is so focused on truth and teaching and all that that I can't see, I don't have enough time in the day to see things the way you see them. And you may try to explain it to me, but you're wasting your time. Because this prophet ain't no king, and he's not going to be able to organize everything in the way that you can. But because I'm serving Christ, I need to be humble enough to say, hey, I need you. That as a prophet or a priest, I need to say I need kings. Kings need to say, you know what? Yeah, we need to focus more on truth, and maybe we need to focus more on people. The beauty is when Christ is the center, it's not about me. It's not about me. So we don't serve under compulsion. Rather, we serve because there's a desire in the heart to accomplish something great for God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says, The saying is trustworthy. Anyone who aspires to the office of an overseer, meaning an elder or a leader, he desires a noble task. It is good to desire leadership. It is good to be passionate in the church. Now, second, he's saying not under compulsion, but rather out of a calling, out of a passion. Second, an elder or leader is someone that serves not for selfish gain, but rather, as he says, eagerly. He says, not selfishly, instead, we are to serve eagerly. You know, I've served in a number of churches, and I've been able to discover the difference between someone who has a calling and someone that has a job. And maybe you've seen this in your own place of business or opportunity. There are those that just do the job, and there are those that are passionate about the job that they do. There's those that show up for the check, and there's those that show up for the opportunity to make an impact in the lives of others. That in ministry, we're not serving to get a paycheck. We're not serving to get a title or a position. Rather, this is what we would do regardless of whether it was a job or not, because God's placed it in your heart. I know for me personally, if, if I didn't have the opportunity to meet one-on-one with people, I would have done that anyways. It, it wouldn't matter. Now, I probably wouldn't have gotten up front. That's the one thing, the job aspect. It, it, would, it pushes you to do things that you may not ordinarily do. But there are things in us that God wants to get out because he's placed them in there. And those are the things that we, we have to do. They're the things that we don't do because it's a job. We do it because we love God. And we know he's placed these desires in us. And if we don't get involved, 
then that aspect of life and ministry is not going to be impacted. So he says we don't do it selfishly, meaning it's not for greed. It's not for what we can get out of it. It's not for the titles and the accolades. Now, this is a big change because what he's talking about is motivation. You know, motivation can be hard to see, but I think it is seen through faithfulness, trust, and consistency. He's saying, what are you most after? What is it that you want the most? You know, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul captured it this way. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pains. Now, notice he doesn't say money is the root of evil. Money is not evil. It's the motivation that causes you to pursue money that's evil. He's saying if what we're after in leadership is simply to get something for ourselves, you're not going to stick it out. Because when you think of the ultimate example of leadership, Jesus didn't get a whole lot for himself in the way that he led. His leadership led him to the cross. And in the cross, that sacrifice wasn't for him, it was for us. And if Jesus is that example of ministry, we've got to have something much more powerful than accolades or money or success that's going to motivate us to go through times of suffering and hardship. Because often that's what service means in the church. And I've heard people say this, you know, I don't mind serving, but I don't want to be treated as a servant. (laughs) Am I the only one that gets that? (laughs) I think that's hilarious. I, I, I don't mind serving, but don't treat me as a servant. Well, who is Jesus? I did not come to be served. I came to serve. When you look at the outcome of his life, he was treated as a servant. But realize, because he was following his father, what God used with his, what he did with the service he gave, transformed lives. See, why do we serve? He talks about not not eagerly, not, not just for what we can get for ourselves, but rather to do it in a way that honors God. And then third, not lording it over them, not being dictators. But rather, he says in verse 3, servant leaders, not domineering. Notice this verse 3, over those in charge, but being examples to the flock. It's an interesting story. As you go through the stories of the Gospels, James and John saw a great opportunity. Because, see, a lot of people knew that Jesus was a Messiah. Messiah meant king. He was one that was going to rise to a throne. He was going to go, as Palm Sunday indicates, uh, He was going to be coronated as a king into uh, Jerusalem. They thought he was going to a place of power. And in some ways, he did. And so they said to Jesus, hey, when you get to the throne, can you remember us? The guys that loved you, the guys that were in it for you, Jesus, we are here for you. But when you get there, can we just maybe sit on your left and right when you get on the throne? And Jesus said to them, hey, that place is not for me to give. But it will be given to someone, for he who is the servant of all is the greatest in the kingdom of God. See, why did James and John follow Jesus? Well, they saw success at the end of the road. And yet that success, as we said, is not a throne in a kingdom, but rather a cross outside the kingdom. That Jesus ascended to a cross, and he was showing us an example of what leadership looks like. It means to set down your best interest for the interest of others. That humility is not 
really thinking less of yourself. It's the ability not to think of yourself. It's self-forgetfulness. Forgetfulness that now compels us to serve in the best interest of others. So he says we're not to domineer over others, but rather to be a servant leader, a leader that reflects the character of Jesus. So here's the question. How are we going to do that? Because I'll tell you as a pastor, I have some bad days. Is it okay to confess that? I get some bad days. Because I got dreams and hopes and desires. I, I want things to be accomplished. But sometimes the accomplishment that God wants to do actually has to start in you before it can come out through you. And often in Christianity and leadership, God places you in situations where you fail so that he can finally pick you up and work in your life. So the question becomes, what's the motivation that drives us? Well, notice again in verse 1, he talks about this word glory. Then down in verse 4, he picks it up again and he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Have you ever wondered why God calls us sheep? It's not a flattering term. Think of a lot of animals I'd like to be called. Uh, I, don't, I don't think sheep is the first among them. And I don't know a lot about sheep. Maybe you guys come from that background. Um, I haven't experienced a lot of sheep. But I do know domesticated animals. I know dogs. I know cats. Uh, I've seen a few horses in my lifetime. I've seen some animals, gerbils, hamsters, all that kind of stuff. And one of the things you'll discover is when you take a domesticated animal and that animal breaks out, it's free, they'll do one of two things. One, they'll either survive, they'll live in the wild on their own, or they're going to come back home. Well, the problem with sheep is they don't know they're lost. They have no sense of direction. They don't know to live in the wild or to come home because a sheep cannot live without a shepherd, which means in ministry, ministry and serving others is hard. That's the point. You're not going to get any good feelings from sheep. They're not going to love you back. They're not going to praise you. They're not going to honor you. Often they're going to give you the exact opposite of what you were hoping for. And that's the beauty of ministry is each time we find ourselves in situations where we're serving and we don't get what we want, it, it forces us to ask the question, what do I want? Why am I doing this? And Peter says, if you're not chasing after an un fading, unfading crown of glory, any other pursuit, you're going to quit. You're going to get out of the church because, listen, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. If you're trying to get praise or respect from others or money or a title, he says you're not going to get it. Now, when he describes an unfading crown, he's comparing that to something in his culture. Before the Olympics were the Pan-Hellenic Games, and, you know, athletes would train. They would commit their entire life to a particular event or sport. And they would do it to get a crown. Now, at that time, it wasn't gold. I mean, it wasn't valuable, right? It wasn't bronze or, or, or silver, any of those things that would not perish. Rather, it was a wreath. That's what you got. You got a wreath placed on your head, which meant, meant in a year's time, that wreath is just going to be dust, that you invested all of these things into something that you thought was going to be glorious. You stood on the stage. You were number one. Well, what did that glory do for you two years later when you could no longer run the way that you once ran? Or you didn't get the outcome that you once had? He's saying you've got to have, you've got to have an end goal that's greater. 
You've got to set your eyes not on what you can get, but on what God has done. And that has to become beautiful in your heart. You've got to set your eyes not on what you can get, but on what God has done. And listen, this is true for any area of change in the Christian life. What God has done and who he is has to become beautiful in your heart. Now, how does that happen? Well, if you go back to where we began, it starts by recognizing. Recognizing who I am and what God has done. Now, I've spent a lot of time with people, and one of the privileges I think I have as a a pastor, maybe because my heart is that of a priest, is I love to meet with people, and certainly when they're going through challenging times. I like to meet with them, and I don't want to see them go through hard times, but I don't mind ministering to people in those situations because I believe that God can meet those needs. And I've seen him meet those needs in my life. And often when I meet with people that are in these places where life has fallen apart, they've made a bad decision, and all the consequences are coming down. And they feel as broken and as low as they possibly could be. They don't see it in them, but I start to see the beginnings of a leader. Now, not on that day, not in that moment, not the next week, but the beginning of that foundation for leadership is there. Why? Because they know if I'm going to rise up, only God can do it. If I'm going to get out of this and and things are going to go well, only God can guide the way. I recognize that if I do it on my own, this is the result I'm going to get. But if I do it in God's way, he can heal the heart. He can transform me. And instead of pointing people to myself, which I recognize that I don't have a lot to give, I'm going to start pointing people to God. See, it's when you find that you're at that place where you see the depths of your sin and the beauty of God's grace that you finally are ready to lead. Because you finally have something to offer. Something to offer that isn't about getting something for yourself, but rather truly loving someone else. And what does it look like to love someone else? But to give them what they really need. And often I'll tell you what they really need isn't me. It isn't knowing how good we are or how talented we are. Because the cool thing in this passage is that Peter never talks about talent, does he? And yet I feel like there's a lot of people in this church that feel unqualified because they don't feel talented. The sad thing, I think, in the church is we have raised up the wrong things and we've made a lot of people feel unqualified because they don't have those charismatic gifts. Maybe they can't get up front and speak. Maybe they couldn't lead music. Maybe they couldn't do the things because what often we do is we raise up in our culture what the culture wants. But see, in the church, we've got to be countercultural. Because often those with great character, those are the ones God uses. The ones that are willing to serve and sacrifice. The ones that are willing to say, you know what, this isn't about me. This isn't about what I want. Rather, this is about what God wants for me and allowing him to use me in a way that, that causes people to see who he is. And in seeing who he is, to really understand the love and the grace and the truth that God has given See, what leadership is about is really pointing people to Christ. But if you don't want Christ, then leadership is going to be confusing. It's not a place of joy. Rather, it's a place of hardship. Because, see, the beauty of of life in God is that he's always reminding us you can't do it. He's calling us to things we can't do so that we might rely on the one that can do it through us. And as we conclude, I think the greatest example of this is, is Paul. Externally, a leader, a domineering leader, a lion of a leader. Knew what he wanted, got it, pursued it. And yet Paul said, here is my principle for leadership. 
He says, my principle for leadership is that God's power is perfected in my weakness. Now, what is he saying by weakness? What he's recognizing is the mission's bigger than me. The mission is greater than me. It's not me. It's God working through me. And the more I'm dependent on him, and the more I see who he is, the more God will start to work through me in a way that touches the lives of others. You know, one final story. There's a story of, uh, in the book of Acts of this man named Stephen. Stephen was one of the first deacons, those that served in the church, but he was also the first martyr of the Christian church. And as, they, as he was being martyred, there's this image that was before him. I don't know if it was a literal picture or if it was something in his head, but he said, as he was being stoned, and now I see Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father in all his glory. So as he's losing his earthly life, why did that image come to mind? Because see, in that moment, he said, it's worth it. As his life was being taken from him, he saw something that was worth it. It was worth sacrificing for. That's what the Christian faith is about, not just in leadership but in life. We live to the glory of God because when the glory of God fills the soul, it's worth it. It's worth the sacrifice. It's worth investing to his kingdom and dying to our kingdom so that we might experience what it means for God to use us in ways at last so let me ask what are you investing in and and listen are you investing in a way that's safe i know we want to stay safe but often to really serve god we've got to place ourselves in positions of weakness we've got to allow him to work through us in ways that we otherwise may try to ignore so that his strength and his glory might work through us do you see the picture beauty is it's not about us Because when it's about him, it's about the best thing of all. It's about his glory. Let me pray for us. Father, you tell us the kingdom of God is, you show us it's so contrary to the kingdom of this world. Father, in this world, we, we celebrate what our greatest success is often our greatest benefit what benefits us the most, what gives us the greatest feelings of identity and purpose is that we've gotten what we want. And yet, Lord, you've told us our desires are are too small, that in just pursuing what we want, we miss what we need, and what we need is you. What we need is to allow our lives to be poured out like a drink offering, a fragrant offering to you, Lord, that you might use us in a way that we really find that our identity, when it's in you and your glory, Lord, you can accomplish so much more than we could ask or imagine. Father, help us to see the wisdom in leading as servants and seeking the best interest of others. And Father, doing things in a way that doesn't just rely on our intellect or wisdom. We use the gifts you've given, but Father, we're We're submitting ourselves to you and saying, Lord, would you guide me and lead me in this? And if there's something I need to see and a way I need to act differently that would show your glory, Father, would you guide us into that truth we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond and worship.